Good afternoon. This is Terry Cargis. I'm the executive director here at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. And we have the honor and pleasure of, uh, of speaking today with one of the real icons of motorsports and, and um, restoration and fabrication, creative car building, and, um, and one of the most entertaining and, and generous guys that we know. Um, it, I've known Bruce uh, Canapa here for quite some time, but I can also say that in the last 10 years since I've been at the museum, he's been one of the most generous men that we've worked with and uh, did a rebuild on a, on a McLaren, uh, transformed an MAD into an MADF uh, for us and, um, and uh, sent us a, the first ever 200 mile an hour car in a, on, on a, uh, on a, uh, a, um, what a NASCAR uh, track what, was it Buddy Baker? In Buddy Baker, yeah. Buddy Baker, at, at a uh, one of the one of the really cool cars in the collection, and has also done something very special during um, our auctions uh, at our galas, and that's to offer rides in his various Porsches at uh, Sonoma or Laguna Seca, and uh, those have gone for big money, and it's been a, a, really a, a huge help to us. So. Bruce, welcome. I I, um, I marvel at your work. I, I've seen your work for years, and you know the one of the there's a, several things that you can say about a cannibal car. You can look at it and say, "Oh, that looks like a cannibal car because the car is perfect." In fact, I'll never forget walking through your showroom and looking at the cars on display, and I thought, "This is really, really remarkable." There are probably 25, 30 cars in there. And I can say for the first time ever, I was looking at those cars and say, I wouldn't change a thing on any one of them. That, that's, that, that everything that was done to every one of those cars describes perfectly how the car ought to look, how it ought to sit, um, the paint, uh, the interior combinations, um, magic. You, you, you have a magic touch, sir. So anyway, long, long warm up, but welcome. Well, thank you. Um, I, I don't think I can live up to all that, but thank you anyway. Well, you, you already have, so <laughs> it's, that's easy. Um, how did you get started? It, uh, I guess the, the first question, you know, for, for a lot of folks that who know you only from the track, how did you get started in racing? Well, you know, that, that really started when I was a little kid because, uh, my, my dad, my dad was a car dealer. He, uh, Originally, he was in World War II, and he did both of the missions and and came out of that, and he ended up looking for a job, and he went to work for his sister's husband, who had a Packer dealership. And, uh, and you know, long story short, over the years, he grew his, um, his involvement in the car business to where he ended up being a new car dealer, and, uh, and for a lot of years, starting in the I think I think he had his first franchises he owned in the mid '60s, and then that that's how he finished out his string. So I was born in the car business. Well, part of being born into that world is you're around wheels, and uh, um, it's hard to be around wheels and not want to go fast. See how fast a wheel goes, whether it's a bicycle or whatever it happens to be. And and uh, and it really started with you know whatever you, whatever you did on a bicycle, I tried to do it faster or crazier or whatever, and then that evolved into honestly involved into a go-kart by the time I was I think about 11 I my dad made a deal with me he didn't like the idea 
And he didn't like the idea because he thought I'd get hurt because I was always trying things that you shouldn't do. But uh, he said that if I earned half the money it took to buy a go-kart, that he would uh, pay the other half. Well, you know, I think a bug cart, I bought a bug cart and with one McCullough engine. And I think, I think, you know, I don't know what they were then, a hundred bucks or whatever it was. And so, or 250 bucks. And so I did everything I had to do to earn half of it, you know, work every job I could think of just to get enough money to buy half. And I did. And then, you know, I drove it in the alley behind our house. We, we lived in a residential area where there were alleys and uh, which were cool because nobody was in the alleys except for taking a car in and out of a garage typically. <clears throat> so there was about four of us had go-karts and I think I was the youngest and we would race up and down the alleys and, and it, it all started there. And I mean, I, I, I couldn't go fast enough. That was, uh, and that's never changed really. I couldn't go fast. <laughs> so from go-karts, and this was where where were you growing up what where was that group? santa cruz i was in santa cruz yeah we so, lived and you're still in santa cruz yeah i still am yeah i'm i'm outside of the city limits but i'm still in santa cruz county yes and so that so you had a go-kart for the alley how did that transform itself into being at a track somewhere what in oh. and in what so my dad had a, a body shop manager and his brother, who was our lead body guy. They were really great body guys. And they had built um, kind of a claimer. I mean, they, there was a stock car, but they called them claimers because somebody could claim it for a certain yeah. amount of money. And they built it and they, they didn't have a lot of money, these guys. So they, they got an Edsel and they put Ford sheet metal on it. So nobody knew it was an Edsel <laughs> and uh, they had painted it all black. And oh, they had this thing just beautiful put the roll cage in it. And of course the roll cage back then was boiler plate from the plumbing shop, you know? So they put a roll cage in and all this stuff. And they, they kept saying they were going to drive it. And I kept saying, you should let me drive it. And no, no, we can't do that. Your dad won't allow that. We can't let you drive it. So I finally talked, well, mom talked dad into letting me drive it. Dad wasn't for it, but mom kind of overrode that because my mom was the had the had the go fast gene pool you know she every car she was in she went as fast as it would go lincoln mercury station wagon it didn't matter she was going to go as fast as it would go and and everybody wanted to ride with my mom so we go to a game everybody was riding with us because we got there first <laughs> and and everybody gets to see 100 mile an hour on the speedometer so so anyway so mom convinced dad to let me drive it and i convinced the body shop guys to let me drive their car and and my mom signed a thing that I said I was 16 when I was 15 and to get a NASCAR license because Watsonville Speedway was NASCAR sanctioned. And mm -hmm. I started at Watsonville Speedway in a dirt car, you know, and uh, and and a funny story was the first night in the car, I made the main event and uh, which was not easy to do. There was a C main, a B main, an A main. And I actually made the main event of my my rookie run in the thing. And Ernie Irvin's father that Ernie Irvin was from Salinas, the NASCAR driver, if you remember. Yeah. Well, his his dad was Vic Irvin. Vic was the reigning champion at Watsonville. He was a wild man. I mean, he was, I think he was at the bar before the race. I know he was at the bar after the race. <laughs> and when I showed up and made the show, he taught me a lesson and flipped me over the first night of the main event. Or no the, kidding? Yeah. Is and, that right? Yeah, first night. <laughs> Upside <laughs> down. That was a lesson. <laughs> a little love tap? A little more than a love tap. <laughs> what what did mom have to say about that? Uh didn't bother mom. Bothered yeah. dad, didn't bother mom. So what, how about the guys who, who owned the car? <laughs> they 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 were a little bit disappointed, but 
then there were scars on the car. So now it's time to race it. So that, <laughs> that, that opened the door. It wasn't about shiny anymore. So, so was that, that, did you stay at Watsonville? And You know, I, I ran, I really only ran their car, I think one year, um, not much more than that. And then I built a sportsman car and uh, a sportsman car was kind of a 57 Chevy frame and the body was as narrow as the frame. So you took a 50, you took whatever body you wanted, but you narrowed it up to the width of the frame rails and it had a wing on the top and it had 358 cubic inch engine with a four barrel on it and gasoline and, and Franklin, uh, you know, Franklin uh, hubs and everything and, and big tires. And that was a dirt car. That was kind of an early version of a super modified, but they call them sportsmen. So I did those cars for two years and then I switched from there to super modifieds and started racing super modifieds on pavement and dirt. And then eventually ended up driving sprint cars. And I, I in super modifieds, I got, I started out driving a car that I had, and then I got hired to drive a car for a guy named JD Stacy, who had was buying NASCAR teams and stuff. And he put me in his super modified and, um, and then, you know, and we did pretty well in those cars. And then when got to that point where I, he wanted me to go move to the South. He was from Kentucky and drive a stock car. And I said, yeah, I don't want to move to the South. And he said, well, what do you want to race? And I said, I said, I want to race a sprint car. So, so he made a deal. Uh, um, I knew, I knew Gary Patterson and Gary told uh, uh, Speedy Bill Smith that I was, you know, a, a guy that should drive one of those cars. And cause, cause Bill didn't have a lot of those cars that he ran. They were kind of like house cars, but you had to have a sponsor to pay for everything. So I ended up with with one of one of those cars. In fact, I learned later from Wolfgang that when he was working for Speedy Bill, he'd work Monday through Friday for him and then go race. And my car was the last car he built uh, before he went full time racing. But uh, and we've got that car in the museum now. We found it and got it back in the museum. But oh my God. in any case, then I went sprint car racing, and and honestly, that was my favorite car. They uh, you get some you get some bruises in them. I had my share of bruises in them, but. God, they're fun. They're, there's nothing more fun than a sprint car, to me, anyway. And uh, you, it, it, let me take you back to to the beginning, though. You you built your own. You raced their car in the the uh, the Nash for for a, a year, and then you built your own car. Yeah, I how built a sportsman. How, how did you know how to do that? Well, I didn't. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I was doing mechanical stuff from the time I was twelve, and. Um, you know, and I was taking things apart. They weren't all necessarily getting back together, but I was taking plenty of things apart. And then, and then, you know, when I wanted to build a race car, I, there was a guy that had a welding shop um, and he did fences and gates and all kinds of stuff. And he was a real artist and he was, he was pretty old, but he, he loved all the stuff. And so I went out there and he taught me how to arc weld and, and do this and do that. So, and he helped me a lot. So we, kind of built a lot of it out of his shop. And, and um, then I had another guy that was kind of a drag race kind of guy, you know, backyard guy, and mm -hmm. he helped me with the mechanicals and, and, you know, we just, we just did it period. And I knew yeah. how to paint and all that stuff. So the painting part was easy and the body part was easy. I already did all that in my dad's shops and, and uh, you know, and, and we, we made it happen. I, I mean, it's remarkable just to, Oh, that was easy, you know. I, yeah, I, I knew how to do body work. I knew how to paint. That I was a, I was a natural. I that's not part of every everyday language or conversation. It, that's really remarkable in its own right. Was there anybody that was influencing you? Uh, because one of the trademarks of your work 
is the fit and finish is absolutely flawless. Did, did you have mentors that were working with you to say, you know, like a, a Phil Remington or, or a Don Spencer or guys like that, that could show you the fine, the fine points on all of that? Well, it was different guys at different times. I mean, literally those two guys that worked for my dad in the body shop, they were incredibly good body guys. I mean, they could pound out a fender and use almost no body filler in it. And, mm. uh, <clears throat> and they could paint and you didn't have to color sand and rub it. It was kind of done. And that's back in the days when you did a hot pot with enamel. So that was not easy to spray, mm. but, but I, you know, I, it didn't come naturally to me. I learned how to, how to do those things from those guys. I learned how to paint. And then I painted all kinds of custom stuff. And I, and a lot of that was just trial and error and teaching yourself how to do things and learning from other guys. So, I mean, I learned, I, I learned paint skills. I mean, we had different guys around us. We had, we had Rod Powell and Salinas and I was watching what he was doing and paying attention. And we had Art Himsel and Concord and, you know, there was, there was guys all around car guys here, not, not as many as LA, but a lot of them. And eventually, quite honestly, eventually, and I learned in my dad's shop, I learned most skill sets working in my dad's different departments in the dealership. Mm. But, but at the end of the day, when I was going through college and stuff out of high school, Kent Fuller had moved here and, and he moved right next door to where I am now. In fact, I own his old building, but he moved here and brought Fuller chassis here. And, and, you know, I learned a lot hanging around Fuller shop and, and working there when he let me do stuff. So, you know, and they did everything there. They did all the, the Galpin Ford four engine Mustang was built there. All the top fuel cars, like, like Bruce's dragster was built by Fuller. And oh. I got to learn from, I mean, and he was one of the most brilliant builders I ever met. I mean, he didn't do drawings. He didn't do anything. He just lay the tubes out on the floor, start cutting them up and weld them together. And he had a top fuel car, you know, I mean, <laughs> the guy had an incredible mind. He really did. So, yeah. so I got, I got exposed to some really good guys. And then the, the, the part about being just meticulous, that was, that was just in my gene pool. I mean, when I was a little kid and did models and I did models when I was I started doing models when I was 11 and I was winning the model car contests and wow. And I was using dad's body shop lacquers to paint the bodies and then I was molding and I was, you know, I had all the access to this stuff, but you know, it was just, it was, it was just my nature. It was never good enough. <laughs> no matter what I did, it was never good enough. So mm -hmm. I guess that's why we're, where we're at, you know, and uh, <clears throat> it's just, you know, that attention to detail, I, I can't, I couldn't get away from that if I wanted to. I just, uh, it's got to be done a certain way. And whether it's the color, whether it's the fit and finish, well, you know, I'm, I'm out here right now with a whole bunch of leather samples for one car, looking at the grains and looking at this. And, you know, it's a green leather. I say, this one's got too much yellow in it. This one's got too much blue in it. And I rejected a bunch and they sent me a bunch more. And that just, that's just, that's just who I am. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> there's no fixing it let's put it that way did so okay you you evolved were most of the tracks you started in in watsonville uh but you then evolved to to asphalt and and dirt was that mostly northern california or did you move out of state we went different places so i i drove for some different owners and sprint cars so a lot of times it was where the money was and um mm -hmm. you know we'd go to utah or we'd go to the midwest and really depending on if there was a race paying a lot of money or something, that's where we went. And um, I, I came down to Ascot, would, but, the, you know, we came down to Ascot typically for the Pacific Coast Nationals because that was the big event and the big money event. And, uh, mm -hmm. 
Um, um, so, you know, it's, uh, it was, it was, a, it was a mix of both. Cause I drove a pavement car for, uh, some guys up in Northern California. And then I drove another dirt car, full-time dirt car for a different guy. So I drove different cars for different people. In addition mm -hmm. to the car that I was driving here that we had. So about how often were you, were you, when you started running uh, sprinters, how, how often were you racing? Well, one year I did 60 some races. So you're, you're pretty busy. And I was working in between. So it was like, you know, load up and, you know, on a Thursday night and head out to wherever we're going with the fifth wheel trailer and a pickup truck. And, and, uh, you know, <laughs> that's what you did. And, and, and the guys that were doing it full time, you know, they were already doing a hundred races a year anyway. So, wow. But, yeah. And it was when you had, when you were running a sprinter like that, did you have a crew or were you doing it yourself or? Well, I had, a, I had a crew, but I had, you know, I, we, it was all volunteer guys. It wasn't anybody yeah. getting, I had, I had one guy in my, in my shop that worked with us, you know, that was paid. I had one employee basically of my own that I could afford when I was running my car. And then the rest of the guys were guys that volunteered. And, um, um, and we had, we had a guy named Russ Joseph who was doing engines back then. And he had worked for John DeLong for years and, and John DeLong helped with, you know, how to do things and stuff. So, you know, the stuff we couldn't do, we, we had, we had more volunteer help than anything on a lot of that stuff on, mm -hmm. the, on the labor portion. So. And then, so the sprint cars, how many years was that, that, that you ran sprinters? Six years. Wow. Yeah. And, and you, you're still walking and you got your knuckles. And you... <laughs> uh, I got some obvious bruises, but you know, I, I tell guys, you know, back then people didn't talk about concussions like today. And I, yeah. I had at least four concussions in that six years and I had a skull fracture. I had one accident that I actually was down for a while. And, um, and, but that was normal in those cars. And, uh, yeah. unfortunately a lot, there was a fair amount of guys that never recovered from some of the accidents and, yeah. and a lot of guys that are gone from those cars in that era. But, you know, you know, I don't think anybody that drove them cared. We just, you know, we just wanted a race and, uh, yeah. and, uh, the rest didn't really matter. And you, and you always, I, I always figured it wasn't going to be me that got hurt bad, you know, so I didn't worry about it. So kind of the, the, the way, the best way to get in the car, right? Yeah, I think you have to. I think you get in the car and you're worried about any of it or you're scared you shouldn't get in it or you probably won't get in it. So, so you know, it's just, uh, you know, at the, in fact, it's funny. It took me that when I had the skull fracture, I think it took six or eight months to recover. And mm. uh, and it was just a thing where my my vision was goofy and my my hearing was messed up and my equilibrium was, you know, everything was off. And uh, um, in fact, I had, I had my eyes were red for six of the eight months, no white in them. And uh, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's what happens, you know? So, Jeez. and my neck was black and it, it was a, it was a good, it was a, it was a bad one. <laughs> so, so anyway, but, but eight months later, I climbed in the car and, and, you know, and you, you climb in the car, not sure, you know, you can even do this again, right? You're not, yeah. and I mean, not sure psychologically, not physically, sure. just not sure you can just get back on the horse and do it. And mm -hmm. once they dropped the flag, it was, it was, it was just like yesterday. So it was fine again, you know. How old were you then, Chris? I was, I started in sprint cars at about uh, 25, I think. And, uh -huh. uh, and I think I was done in, 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 uh, so I think I stopped driving them, yeah, six years later, eighty-one, I think, is the last time I drove sprint cars. So, it, well, you were no spring chicken, and that—I mean, those are pretty. 
Well, actually, no. The the uh, the sprint car guys are, are a lot more involved than the uh, midgets and that some of those other guys. Yeah, and back right? then, you know, guys didn't guys didn't get to race any kind of real professional series. You didn't have teams racing cars like today. Mm -hmm. you, didn't, you didn't have kids starting out at eleven in a formula car, let's say. And yeah. You know, that that was a different era. It started much later. 25 was young to start in, in something fast or big time racing of anything. And and um, today it's all different. You know, it's funny because back then we looked at Sammy Swindell when he showed up and, you know, Sammy's dad had raced sprint cars and mm -hmm. Sammy was like 15 or 16 and nobody could believe it, you know, that this guy was going to race a sprint car. And it was the same I later on when Jeff Gordon came and that was after me, but you know, he was like, he was a little kid when he got in the cars and today that age is, is, is the norm. So yeah. it just wasn't back then. And, you know, in sprint cars, Sammy still drives a sprint car and Kinzer did till five years ago. And, and the guys that survived all this shit drove them their whole lives, you know, most of them. Yeah. God, what did you have aspirations to, to ever do indie cars? Uh, I know a lot of the guys that that came out of uh, the you know Silver Crown cars and that back in the day were were all the dirt guys, but they all really wanted to go to Speedway. Well, you know it's interesting because my sponsor, who who kind of carried me through the super modifieds and the sprint cars in terms of the financial support, he he started buying stock car teams. He wanted me to drive stock cars, so I ran a mm -hmm. stock car twice, and but I didn't want to live in the south and and. Mm -hmm. And and then it was really you live there. That all the stock car guys that race pretty much live there. So yeah. So, so then I went sports car racing instead. I because I loved Porsches. I had fallen in love with Porsches in '74. You know, '73, early '70s. I fell in love with Porsches when I got a chance to drive them and then finally own one. And and so I said that's that's really what I wanted to race was a sports car. And I had no sports car experience. But, you know, I went and the first sports car I drove was a 934 and a half, which was, mm. you know, I, I didn't start in sports cars and MGs and the other things. I started, you know, pretty far up the ladder to begin with. But the car was, was the car fit because I was used to the Porsches, how they drove anyway on the street. And, um, and I don't, I don't necessarily drive stuff slow on the street. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, um, I get a lot of test time on the seat and the seat on the street, but uh but more than that, it was it was a lot like a sprint car. I mean, if you if you're quick in a Porsche, you really drive with your right foot, not the steering wheel, and and uh, you you know you drive off a rear wheel one side or the other instead of just one side like a sprint car. So, so I you know I went sports car racing and 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 you know and everybody wants to be an IndyCar driver at some point, and and I didn't think about it so much. I I did the 935s and and. And then I then I drove the March GTP car with Ray Hall and Jim Truman and and um, that was kind of a last minute deal where I got to drive with those guys in that car. And then after that, I had a sponsor come to me and and a team owner guy and and I went and tested an Indy car and because uh, he wanted to go to Indy and and they had put the money together and and uh, so I did the test and the test was great and um, I was totally comfortable in the car, no big deal. I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, you're, you're, you're hanging it out, but it was, I was comfortable in it and speed never bothered me much and still doesn't probably should. But, um, but at that point, that was 1982, 1983. And it, up till then, all the racing I did when I drove for Momo, when I drove for Garrettsons and different people, it was always, I worked all week and then fly off somewhere to do a race on the weekend and 
get back on, you know, get get on a red eye, come home, be back to work Monday morning. You, you could do that in the old days racing. And then <clears throat> and then when I tested the IndyCar um, and, and, and March was involved in it, Robin Hurd and stuff, it was like, OK, now here's what we want you to do. You're going to you're going to work for this guy. You're going to sign this contract. You're going to, you know, you're going to help sell his product as a sponsor and, and you're not going to do anything else. You're going to be an IndyCar driver. And, uh, and I had to really make a very difficult decision. And uh, I had started my business in 81. I left my dad's business and started what we have today, but in a very small way. I had started in 81 with my own business and I was already had one dealership and was growing stuff as fast as I could. And there was just no way to do both. And uh, it was either go racing or build the business and continue to race for fun. And and so the logical course for me with what I was doing was to keep racing as my hobby and fun, even if it was some pro races and 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 build a business, and make that my work day. What what where was the race that it, your debut race at the nine fourteen? In the nine thirty four. I'm at 9:34. So the first time I drove it was uh, actually at Sears Point in '78. It was uh, I ended up with a year old. The 34 and a half was a one year old car by then. The 35s were were in full force in IMSA and FIA. <clears throat> so I got a 9:34 and a half from George Dyer. He didn't like the car, and I kind of got it for a song from him. And and I ran against the 35s and and I went to Sears Point and I'd never been to any of these road courses in anything, not a not an MG, not a Corvette, nothing. So I drove in the IMSA series and the first race we got seventh. And then we went to Laguna Seca and got fourth. Um, and I should have got third, but I got fourth and then uh, went to Daytona for the 24 hour. And I drug along Rick Mears, who we were friends and. And so I drug Rick along. None of us had been there. And I drug Rick with me and Monty Shelton. And we ended up on the podium. So that's kind of started there. So with with those, those were the first guys you went to the Daytona with? Yeah. And when did you get in? You, you mentioned you rode with uh, Ray Hall and, and Jim Truman. That was 82. And how did you meet those guys? Well, I knew Ray Hall. <clears throat> I knew Bobby from the IndyCar racing because I had gone to IndyCar races for a long time. Uh-huh. So I had met Bobby a number of times. And then uh and then of course Bobby was running 935s, you know, when I was running 935s, because after the 934 and a half, then Porsche built a 935 that as you know I have to this day and uh and and using the historic races now. But uh I met Bobby during the during that IMSA era because he was driving first 935s, then he drove 962s, and I was mm-hmm. kind of driving both of those on and off. I drove I drove for Momo quite a bit. He hired me to drive for him. So, so I, I saw Bobby here and there. And then, and then when this March thing came up, it was the first GTP car they had built. In fact, it was the first chassis and um, Bobby did all the testing in it. And then they put together a team to run it and it was sponsored by Jim and Red Roofs. And, and um, they, they asked if I would, uh, um, I was going to drive a 935 that year with Redmond. And then they asked if I would, uh, drive the March, the person that was going to be in the March didn't like, didn't like Daytona and didn't like, I think, I think if I recall, he didn't like the banking or the night lights or whatever. And then I got, I ended up in that car with those guys. And uh, that was the first time I'd met Jim Truman who was a great guy, but uh, um, you know, I was really, I was lucky to get to drive that car with Bobby and the car was incredible. I mean, we, geez, it was so much faster than a 935. It was, 
it was almost laughable how quick the car was. So, I mean, it's an amazing story when you start thinking about who you started racing with. I mean, oh yeah, Rick Mears. Oh, he had a reasonably successful career. <laughs> yeah, reasonably. God, how did you know Rick? Um, I knew Rick from, um, I'd met Rick just because of the different dirt car stuff, Pikes Peak. He was a Pikes Peak back. Uh, yeah. He ran yeah. a Pikes Peak before I did with the, with the buggy car. And, uh, so I met Rick then I met, I knew Rick from motorcycle riding. Cause I, a bunch of these guys, actually, if I think back a little bit, a lot of these guys, I spent most of the time in, early on meeting them on the Colorado 500. And, mm -hmm. uh, I was on the Colorado 500 the second year it started, the, um, and there was only 37 of us, then Parnelli and Walker and Gurney and and Bobby came and and um, the Unzers, both Bobby and Al. And so and I and I knew I knew different guys of these guys because I had a company building the big trailers, you know, for the motorsports. Mm -hmm. We were building their trailers. Um, we built trailers for a number of the teams. And so I kind of kind of knew a lot of guys. And then the Colorado 500 was really um, just a fun deal for a bunch of racers. And, and I spent a lot of time with those guys there. And of course, Rick went on that ride every year and Roger and all those guys. So it, 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 it's so remarkable when you think about the people that you meet and then how that gets hooked up, you know, the stories about, um, Parnelli meeting answers, uh, at, at, at Pikes Peak and then leading to Parnelli renting a car for Bobby because Bobby said, I'm not good enough. I couldn't go to Indy. And Parnelli got him a car and said, no, you got to go. go you're, the car's there for you. Go. Just remarkable how that, and then you meet Rick Mears. I mean, yeah. one of the, arguably in, in the day, the most talented guy in a car. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, they, honestly, the, the guys that you just listed, just those six, seven guys alone. I mean, <laughs> what? <laughs> that's really incredible. That that's a real compliment to your own talent, but that, that, I mean, it's really, that's, that's some great history. So you, you started to talk about um, Pike's peak, but there's a much, there's a lot more in that story. What you, you might talk about what you did on the mountain. Well, the mountain. So we went to the mountain in 19 actually went there in 79. We, we built a buggy in house and, and one of the guys that, that was really, um, the guys that built the best buggies and and uh, and Rick drove one of those buggies and a number of other guys was was a two guys named uh, Paul Newman and Doug Drager and different Paul Newman but they, they they these guys were talented builders and I ended up hiring Paul Newman to work in my shop so we built a buggy to go up there in 79 and uh, we put a six-cylinder normally aspirated motor in it and and it was fine, but it ended up having a mechanical failure in the in the steering, so we really didn't get to do anything. So we went back in '80, and um, and '80 I got serious. I went up there a couple of weeks early, and in a rent car, just drove up and down the damn mountain every day to learn the mountain and the corners, and you know you get your references because it, it's a pretty pretty blind road um, to drive up. And there was no guardrails, and you kind of you you're looking up at the horizon all the time, so you got to really memorize where the road's coming down to that to know where the corner's going to be because you don't see it till you're there so i i really spent the time put in the time to learn the road and and we had changed the car we we put a turbo porsche engine in the car uh, just basically a street 79 engine it was a 3.3 liter engine and we we remanifolded it to to make it a twin turbo and 
Jerry Woods did fuel, some fuel stuff and some cam stuff. And so we probably had a 360 horsepower, 365 horsepower engine with very little lag. But the key was the car weighed 1,000 pounds ready to roll. Wow. And uh, uh, there wasn't much to it. And so we took that car up there and and um, right out of the box, um, it was the quickest car. We were we were in all of all the practice sessions. We pretty much and and Alanzer was there, Junior and Bobby Unzer Jr. was there, and 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 Al Senior and Bobby Senior, and they were they were there to you know to 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 take home all the honors because they did that a lot when they were there. Those guys and so the answers were something. So we 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 ended up with the qualifying record and um, and uh, and Bobby Bobby protested the car in in between everything that went on. He just he he knew and he knew it was in trouble. In fact. I never forget Al. Al. Al walked up at one point uh, when we had the car sitting out of the back of the trailer and, and Bobby was there and asking all these questions about it. What was this? What was that? And and I, mean, I never forget Al looking at him. And Al was such a quiet kind of guy. You know, Bobby was like type A crazy, you know, just, you know, just, just, you know, on it all every second. And and I'll never forget it. And Al looked at Bobby and he said, "Bobby, he said I told you somebody'd show up here someday with something that'd kick your ass," and uh, and and that just set Bobby off. That didn't help anything. And then it was like, "How do we get this car out of here?" So he he tried everything to get it protested, and and that failed. And uh, so we ended up with a qualifying record. And then in the race, in the race we had everybody covered by a lot. And I got up in the W's, and up in the W's it's pretty windy. And so, it, you know, you, you, you hear less of a car, let's say. <clears throat> you hear a sprint car some because of big V8 and straight pipes and everything. But this car was turbocharged. And I came around a corner in the W's, and there was some guy kind of walking across the road. And that was normal up there back then to see a lot of people on the side of the road because they used to open it up the night before the event or two nights before, and people would party and drink. And, of course, you're in altitude, so they're – they're pretty much wasted up there. And I came around the corner and this guy, I don't know, I never, I never figured out whether he had a sleeping bag wrapped around himself or a blanket, but he was walking across the road when I came around the corner and, and I spun to miss him and barely tagged him and ended up backwards in the ditch. Thank God I ended up in the ditch and not on the other side down the cliff, but I ended up backwards in the ditch and it took about 20 seconds to get the damn car to refire and I didn't even know if the car had all all four wheels on it. I didn't even care if it could move. I was going to see if it was going to work. And and I got it fired up and you know out of the ditch, spun it around, and headed to the top. And we ended up second overall. And wow! So you know yeah. we, we were plenty fast. And then the next year we figured, okay, we're coming back now. This is this is too much fun. And Bobby convinced the Pikes Peak Hill Climb Association that they they should they should add USAC rules to the cars. And which is the IndyCar rules. And of course, the minimum weight was 1,500 pounds. This car weighed 1,000. You could only have one turbo. You had to be 2.6 liter. So we never went back. The car was obsolete. And uh, oh, he put us out. And then, and then we did go back, as you know, in 2000. I went back and 20 years later, went back and drove that Kenworth for Kenworth Truck Company. And, and we did set the record with that truck. And uh, you know, but, but you you just said, yeah, we drove the Kenworth truck. You mean driving to the mountain in a Kenworth truck? No, no, we drove, we raced up the mountain <laughs> to Kenworth truck. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Hell no, we didn't drive it there. <laughs> I, flew, I flew an airplane to get there. <laughs> no, I, we, that, that's they, one they, of the most remarkable things I've ever seen or heard about. I, I honestly, that would that's just completely whacked. That that's oh, amazing. It was crazy. And when I went to Kenworth to test it, when they, the chairman of Kenworth, I was doing design work for them. You know, we were, our studio was doing a bunch of design work for Kenworth. And, and at some point, uh, David Hovind, he was, he was the boss then. And he said, he said, you know, we're racing at Pikes Peak. And he said, he said, you race there, right? And I said, oh yeah, 20 years ago. And he says, well, Mercedes is beating us. And he says, uh, he says, I want us to win or, or no point in going. So, so basically I went and looked at the truck up at their test center and, and, and drove it around their oval track. In fact, they, they have an oval track at Mount Vernon, Washington at the test center. And I drove this thing. It's a 16 degree banked oval track and there's no guardrail at the top. And it's funny cause it's just a, it's a weird feeling not to have a guardrail at the top because you just drive yeah. off this thing if you're not careful, yes. but it's psychological because they did have a guardrail. The truck would take it all out anyway, but <laughs> I drove the truck around there and I went like 140 miles an hour around there with this thing. And I said, Jesus, this thing works, you know, and this was on pavement with dirt tires. But then I told him, I said, then I, then I drove it through all their log test roads. And I said, well, I would do this and this. So they changed the whole truck. They moved the engine back and we drilled all the wheels and bolted the tires to the wheels and got Bridgestone to make new tires with four plies instead of 14 and grooved all the tires. And I just had them changing everything. Cause I said, Look, there's 156 corners, and I said, where we're going to win is to take time off every corner. And I said, if I can drive this truck like a sprint car, I said, then we're going to have it in the bag because I'm going to go flying in the corner and pick up the throttle and rotate the truck and step back on the throttle again. And not, and the other trucks, are like everything, they were going up the corner and trying to woe the thing down, slow it up, and get the thing turned through the corner and then step on the gas. And I said, look, you know, Pike speaks about a 9% grade, I think it is, and 156 corners. And the truck happens to weigh just shy of 13,000 pounds. And I Good said, Lord. and I said, and we got power, but I said, you know, just trying to get off each corner with that thing is, you know, either you spin the tires a lot or it takes a little bit to get it rolling. So we, we took a different approach. And if you've ever watched the video, I just drove it basically sideways up the whole mountain. And uh, that, that, that's the part that's so unique, Bruce, is it? You, you hear about driving a race car and it's the seat of your pants. You feel, you feel what the car and the chassis is doing and you set it up that way and it, it, it going into a corner, coming out of a corner, whatever. It, how, it, you're so elevated in a truck, especially in that thing. How did, what did you, where'd you find the, the uh, I guess, how did you figure that out? Well, actually, actually it was all the same. I mean, yes, the thing is huge and weighs 13,000 pounds, but I still drove at seat of the pants. I really did. And, huh. you know, I just, you, you got sensitive to what it was and what, what you could do with it and, and where the edges were. And, you know, I just I, literally, I, and yes, we went and tested first and I went to, we went to some mountain roads in Utah or somewhere. I don't know where they found them. And, you know, I just went flying in the corners to see what it would do and figure out how far I could go, how much risk I could take and keep it on the road. But um, the thing sat flat through the corners. You know, they had it set up really well. It would sit nice and flat and, and, um, and you know, and, 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 and rotate around. Obviously, if you lost it, you couldn't catch it. And, uh, but, uh, but, but it really, it did everything pretty well. I mean, obviously it did pretty well. We were, it's pretty funny because the year we went, set the record the first time, 
the first year, first year we took a minute and a half off the Mercedes record. Um, I mean, right out of the box. And it was just because yeah. of the corner speeds. Their truck was lighter. They'd started with one of those European trucks and it was lighter. And they had a lot more race experience and stuff. And they, I think they had a V8 Mercedes engine and we had a six cylinder Caterpillar engine. But by the time this thing got dialed in, we we had we really took a bunch of time off the off the hill and set the record that nobody ever broke. But it it you know this truck just as an example it it was an 18 liter Caterpillar engine twin turbo that and this was all factory effort. Caterpillar built the engine. Bridgestone mm-hmm. was the tire sponsor. Alco was involved. ZF built the gearbox, um, and Kenworth built the truck up at their lab. All, all their engineers. So basically, this thing had. 2000 just shy of 2000 horsepower when they were done and it had 4300 foot pounds of torque at 1700 rpms and and at sea level at the test center at mount vernon at sea level it did a 12 and a half second quarter mile on the pavement and so it 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 got with the program you know it really did get with it it uh i had power i just had to maintain the you know the speed through the corner so you didn't have to slow it down and that was our advantage uh for all for everything we were doing up there unbelievable did did how many runs did you actually or how many years did you do the truck we did it three years i i did i did they actually built a second truck so we went after the two axle record and the three axle record they built two different trucks and uh and we did it we did it three years total so and and you know it was kind of like there was no reason to go back we were uh we were beating ourselves at some point so uh how, what what did they do with that record? How did they use that to promote? Who Kenworth? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It, back when they were doing that, when they were doing that racing, they they did it to promote, you know, their 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 loyalty from all their owner operators and drivers and everything else. Because Kenworth was like the premium product. Kenworth and Peterbilt, they're both uh-huh. the same company. So it was. We had lots of of guests come to the to the hill climb. You know company owners, big fleets and stuff. And they were all into it. Eventually it became detrimental because at one point Kenworth ended up, Packard ended up with a a huge lawsuit over a truck accident where they said that Kenworth was negligent because they promoted their their trucks going fast. Here's an an example, you know, this guy driving the truck and uh, they ended up having to pay out some substantial sum of money to settle the stupid thing. So, you know, it's, it, uh, it, it, it unfortunately went the wrong way. So, which is, which is like lots of things, right? So, so the, the, you had started, you, you say you, you started your business. Well, have you been back to the, to the, to Pikes Peak since then, since the trucks? No, but you know, that was when the track was all gravel and yeah. I, re- I really liked the, the dirt and I haven't been there since it's been paved. I haven't been back. So. And in, in your regular racing, you've been mostly now uh, Porsches uh, and and vintage. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I did I did Porsches up through the 962s, and then and then really from 90 on, mostly mostly almost everything vintage. And uh, and you know, and the vintage stuff is fun to do. And mm-hmm. and of course, vintage. I've I've been fortunate to drive lots of things. I I have a Trans Am car, which I love driving with those guys. It's a blast. And uh, 
some days they don't like me in there, but it's a blast. Yeah, it's it's like you just those cars you throw around, slide around too. You know that's what that's how they work. The more comfortable yeah. you are with throttle oversteer, the faster it goes. So, mm. so the Trans Am deal is great. I run the 935 in the IMSA class, and I run a 962, and I've driven got a number of other cars, birdcage Maseratis, and I've driven you know, uh, Listers, and I you know Miles Collier's had me drive his his Grand Sport, which is that thing's a hoot because it's kind of an out of control Corvette. You, that's another car you drive with your foot, you know, cause it, it has a mind of its own where it's going. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's sideways and doing all kinds of things all the time. It's, it's, uh, you know, it, and that's the way it was in the day. So, you know, I mean, I've driven nine tens and nine seventeens, of course, I've driven, you know, both turbocharged version and, and the normally aspirated version, but I mean, I'm, I just like to drive everything. So, you know, whatever it is, if uh, somebody says drive it, I'll drive it. So, and and Bruce, what about your collection? That that, that your own cars, you've had uh, some amazing cars in in and out of your collection. I know that you as a as a builder, trader, racer, <laughs> um, you don't seem to stay married too long to to a lot of that stuff. But boy, you have had just an amazing collection of cars. Well, and the the collection, you know, the museum upstairs is about race cars. I like race cars. I like racing and I like all forms of racing. So upstairs, we've got stock cars and indie cars and and um, sprint cars and 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 sports cars and Bonneville and and drag racing. We've got a little bit of everything. And 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 really, there's a lot of cars that have been up there now, shit, 20, 30 years almost. And mm-hmm. but but over the years, I've horse traded out stuff to get better stuff like everybody does. You know, I've. Yeah. I try to always end up with something better than I had. So like, you know, like I have one of the great Prudhomme cars, which, you know, I would never trade that out for another car. Now that's, mm-hmm. that's as good as it gets. And I've got a petty car and I've got an Earnhardt car and, and um, I got one of Parnelli's dirt champ car, the Agajanian car and, and, mm-hmm. um, and I've got a Rothman's Porsche. So I, you know, over the years it's, you know, you just, you just horse trade yourself up, you know, the ladder as far as you can go. And, and uh, I've been fortunate to, you know, buy some good cars and then have them inflate in value and then use that money to buy a better car. So that's kind of, kind of where we're at. So I, I, I do it. I always want to have the best of what I can get. And, and so that, that, that's why I horse trade some, but, but I like race cars. So it's, you know, I've got road cars, but I really like the race cars a lot. I just, I like the history and the stories and, and the people that, you know, were part of that whole thing. I mean, if you look at a day, I have Dan Gurney's first Indy car, you know, the first one, which he drove and eventually won Riverside in that car. But I mean, you know, you, you look back and if you knew Dan, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, it was, he was incredible in, in every yeah. way. I mean, builder, racer didn't matter. So, and, you know, and then Parnelli's another superstar. He, he's my hero anyway, because he's one of those guys that you just stand on the gas and figure out after you stand on the gas, how to control it, how to do everything else with it. And I always had that same kind of theory is that I'll figure it out when we get there. So uh, <laughs> we'll worry about it then. So, but, but, you know, it's, uh, and that's part of it. That's, that puts a smile on my face when I go up there and, and basically you, 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 when you see the cars, you, you, you remember the people and you remember the histories and kind of lights me up because I went to Indy starting when I was 15 you know, almost every year. And, and, uh, I went to, you know, sprint car races and I've been to stock car races and sports car races and can-am races. And, and, uh, so I, I'm a, I'm a race junkie in a lot of ways. And, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of these guys are gone. So those cars are the closest thing yeah. for us to get to, 
to remembering everything they did, you know. You had a 91730, as I recall. Well, the 91730 was was the, the yeah, the Penske Donahue car. Um, you know, it was it was the one that won all the races. It 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 had gone actually from Roger to Otis Chandler, and then it went from Otis Chandler to Tommy Kendall's dad, and then to uh um Jack Satan in France. And uh mm. and and basically one of our customers, you know one day said, you know, I'd like to have that car if you think you can get it. And it had never really been for sale. It had been kind of talked about, but never really for sale. And then, so we pursued it, made a deal to buy it. And then of course we got to restore it. And uh, it's currently, as you know, in Rob Kaufman's collection. Mm -hmm. And it's, whew, that's, that's the most yeah. that's incredible car to drive because it's, you know, it's 1400 horsepower and, uh, and it's 1400 usable horsepower. When yeah. you, you know, it, it spins the tires, but it goes forward and, and it, it handles and it turns and it stops and it does everything. You'd never imagine this is a car that was designed in the early seventies, the way it drives. Yeah. It's, it's just off the charts. Crazy. I'll never forget when Donahue showed up in that thing with it at uh, Riverside and on the first lap uh, Riverside had a mile straight away. The, the, the first lap by just before the end of the, of the first lap, he was so far ahead that you could say, Oh boy, this is, this is great. And this is horrible because this series is over. Yeah. There is no competition in the field. Yeah. Well, it, he won that car. He won every race that year in that car, except one. Yeah. And yeah. he, and he set the fastest lap at every race and he set the qualifying record at every one of those races too. Yeah. So it, it was over after that. Like, like Gurney's GTP cars. You had a Toyota GTP, didn't you? We did. And, yeah. uh, we restored one of those cars and um, yeah, I mean, and I had a Nissan GTP too, and I drove the Nissan quite a bit. And uh, those two, the Brabham, the Brabham car. Yeah. The Brabham car, both, both of those cars that are incredible cars. Cause they were, you know, the 962 was a great gentleman's prototype race car, fan, fantastic car. But when Nissan built their car, that, that was the next generation car. That car made 8,000 pounds of downforce. And uh, and I, I remember the first time I drove the Nissan at Laguna, you know, my lap time was like a 114. I mean, this was this was within shouting distance of the IndyCar guys, these cars. And uh um, you know, they 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 made eleven hundred horsepower and 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 they were just stuck like glue to the track. And uh I remember talking to Jeff about it and he told me he said, actually, he said, he said it takes a long time to get comfortable, but he said at some point you can go flat through six. And uh hmm. And I, I think I spent about 20, 30 laps thinking about going flat through six before I actually did it. And he, he said, well, don't feel bad. It took me a thousand. <laughs> so I said, well, you told me it worked. I, you didn't have anybody to tell you it actually was going to work other than Trevor telling you. And he, he didn't do it. So, but yeah, those cars. And then, then the Toyota was just, uh, you know, another step ahead. Charlie has that. Charlie Nierberg has the Toyota. The, yeah. And that's, yeah. there is no faster prototype car than that Toyota. That's it. And, uh, you know, that, that has held many of the track records and, and forever now, I actually, since they ran, uh, and they, and that pretty much ended that series too. Yeah. No well, in, to race against. in, in, in 93 or whenever, when they won the championship, that car was faster at every track that Indy cars raced in IMSA cars raced road, America, Laguna, every track, the Toyota was faster than the Indy cars. Everyone. Yeah. And I still love listen to those those things spool up and that, that whistle that, that yeah. what, a, what a sensational sound. Um, 
you started your business in 81. And I, I, I think what, what I'm going to recommend here is that there's so much more that I want to cover with you is that we do a part two. Um, we've, we've just about to an hour now, and I, but there's so much more I'd like to do, Bruce. What I will do is, is suggest that um, we schedule another time when I, 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 and, and let me use up some more of your time, but there's, <laughs> we haven't even talked about your business yet. So, uh, and I, and I want to get that. And then also, uh, Ren Sport. I mean, I want to talk about Ren Sport. We got what you did before, uh, what uh, what's coming up, and then also your work and in in, a, in your attempts to to improve and and all, uh, the really yeoman's work that you've done in attempting to save and and improve Laguna Seca. So, um, like I say, let let me save. So we'll save that for part two and okay. then we'll get rescheduled and um what a treat man what an honor i, I, I again you, you've been very generous most generous and helpful and and in every way helping us uh guiding us on the, the rebuild of our corvette resto mod and um which i'll tell you some stories about that <laughs> later <laughs> what a piece anyway we're having fun, and it, it's always a pleasure, Bruce. Thank you so well, much. It, it, it's an honor and a privilege to be a friend of the Peterson Group. You know, from from Bruce and yourself and the whole group, it's it's an amazing place. It's it's amazing how it preserves history for the cars, for for future people to see how this all started, where it came from. Um, you know, I said there's just so much that that younger generations don't know or wouldn't get to see if it weren't for a place like the Peterson. It's pretty amazing. You know, I, 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 on that point, as a, as a closing point, one of the most amazing thing that's going on right now is that we have, I've been here now 10 years, and we have evolved to a point where uh, our exhibits uh, are impactful and drawing separate audiences for each. And about a year and a half ago, Brian Stevens, our exhibitions uh, director, uh, started a, a supercar show or exhibit, and then that evolved into hypercars. And right now we're into phase two of hypercars. And the largest part of our audience right now is 18 to 35. Yeah. And I defy any museum in the country anywhere to talk about attracting a youth or a youthful audience. And especially in, the, in an industry like ours where people they say that kids don't care about cars. It's not true. You need to talk to them about what they like. And, and that's taken place here. Kids walk in and these hypercars, and as you know, Bruce, they'll, they'll, there'll be 15 cars and they can cite the cost for each one, how many uh, were in the production run, zero to a hundred times and all the other specs on them. And, and it's remarkable, but it's, it's a real pleasure to be able to see what has evolved by, by giving them what they want. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, it's the future, isn't it? And uh, I mean, the museum's about the past and the present and the future. And uh, and and if you're going to get young people, you got to find things that they're attracted to, or you know, that 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 are cool to them. And 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 it's cool to all of us. But it starts with those guys seeing that stuff, and then from there they learn about the other stuff. They come here and look at. Yes, they come here. They see a speed tail here, or they see a nine fifty nine, or they see you know whatever Ferrari here. They, they, they ooh and all that, but then, then it's great because they, they start to want to understand other things. And, and if they give you the time to explain it to them, then they, then they get into the stuff that we're into too. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's really, it, it's interesting. Uh, well, I, I can't 
you know, I can go on and on. I, I just, again, thank you so much. It was fun to be with you. We had with Wolfgang, Portia and, and, um, and Bruce and all the things that went on around that. And that I know that the Portia family is a big fan of yours and Portia uh, in, in Stuttgart is a big fan of yours. And that the things that have gone on and that you've contributed have been remarkable. So I, I'll say thank you for now. And then we'll look forward to, to uh, putting part two together. All Great right. stuff. Great stuff, bud.